For Pacifica Radio, January 11th, 2024, I'm Scott Horton. This is Anti-War Radio. All right, y'all, welcome to the show. It is Anti-War Radio. I'm your host, Scott Horton. I'm editorial director at Antiwar.com. And I'm the author of the book, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. You can find my full interview archive, just short of 6,000 of them now, going back to 2003. In fact, we'll be at like 5,998, I think, after today. Uh, ScottHorton.org and at YouTube.com slash ScottHortonShow and all the video channels and podcatchers and things. And you can follow me on Twitter, if you dare, at ScottHortonShow. All right. Welcoming back to the show, the Institute's news editor and Antiwar.com's opinion editor and the host of the great podcast, Conflicts of Interest, and my good friend, Kyle Anzalone. How are you doing, Kyle? Happy to be back on the show today, Scott. Great, man. Happy to have you here. And we got so much important news to talk about. First, let's do Israel-Palestine. Talk to me about the South African case in the ICC there in the Hague. And, uh, and then also you've got a couple news stories here about Antony Blinken. I don't know why he even shows up in the morning, but anyway, uh, first of all, what's going on at the Hague? Yeah. So it's the, uh, ICJ that they're holding it at. And I, I'm not sure as of probably as the time we're recording, Scott, they're still ongoing. Uh, the South Africans were presenting their case this morning. And of course, you know, one of the very notable things about the South African case is it was joined by a member of the Israeli Knesset, an Israeli lawmaker. And now, of course, you know, the rest of the Knesset is trying to spell this guy for doing so. Uh, but he is out there and I think rightfully call, so calling himself a true patriot and saying what, you know, what things call for right now is to call for restraint, not more violence. And to say that we can not commit these war crimes that we are committing in Gaza. And so, uh, you know, he's he's facing a lot of heat from his fellow lawmakers. But uh and, and then, of course, the U.S. has denounced it as well. Uh, John Kirby, the White House National Security Council spokesperson, called uh, called it awful. Uh, Antony Blinken, uh, our Secretary of State, while he was in Israel, uh, denounced the the South African uh, indictment of Israel with their charges, and then also. Uh, went on to say that it was counterproductive for the Palestinians. He said it's going to make it harder to get aid into the Palestinians, which, you know, is just completely absurd in 1984 level propaganda that our secretary of state is trying to spit out. So one of the articles I wrote for the Institute yesterday, Scott, was going over some of the requests Blinken made of Israel while he was uh, in the country during his Mideast trip. And a couple things that he asked Israel to do was allow the Palestinians to return to North Gaza, release tats money. So Israel collects tats money on behalf of the Palestinian Authority. And since October 7th, they've withheld that. Biden has actually pushed Netanyahu in the past to agree to this proposal that was first made by Netanyahu to allow the Norwegians to have access to that money. And I guess then they would play like a a role of purchasing things on behalf of the Palestinian Authority or allowing the Palestinian Authority to have access to that money in certain circumstances. And then they also called for Israel to just scale down operations in the the Gaza Strip. And we had Smoltrich, uh, the Israeli 
uh, finance minister post on ETS after Blinken's visit that, you know, Blinken's real nice and we really appreciate our allies in the U.S., but we are not going to release that money. And so this seems to be a top agenda item for uh, President Biden uh, releasing the, the Palestinian tax money. I think it's really important to what Biden sees as his long term plan uh, for Israel, which includes the Palestinian Authority eventually governing the Gaza Strip after uh, the Israelis and their military campaign and eventual military occupation, which of course can't happen if the Palestinian Authority is bankrupted by Israel and collapses well before then. So he's really trying to get Israel to, to release this money and apparently hung up on Netanyahu and said, fits this and, and ended the phone call with him uh, last month over this issue. And it seems the Israelis still aren't going to fit it. Uh, on the ethnic cleansing, Smoltrich also tweeted that you know, they have no plans to allow the Palestinians to return back to Gaza and are working on plans for them to voluntarily migrate in, as uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu called it, for other countries to absorb the Palestinians. And actually, while uh, Blinken was in Israel, the Israeli Defense Minister Gallant said that Israel would be escalating their military operations in the southern half of the Gaza Strip. So, you know, everything the U.S. is asking for, Israel is saying absolutely not. And Blinken just hates it. You, you know, they're putting this on Twitter, Scott. Uh, you know, the, these posts just absolutely ignoring it. And the, the White House has absolutely no plans. And, you, you know, the New York Times keeps reporting it. No plans to condition any aid to Israel. It's Anti-War Radio. I'm Scott Horton talking with Kyle Anzalone from Antiwar.com. And so I think it's important to note here, as you do in your piece, that Bezalel Smotrich, again, he is the finance minister in Netanyahu's ruling coalition there, that he has to lie or, you know what, embellish like crazy, just, I guess, even in his own mind to justify what they're doing. By calling the people of the Gaza Strip Nazis. But they're not Nazis. That's just name calling, right? It's not anything. Are they national socialists? Are they Hitlerians at all? Is that their economic or national policy or anything? Is even exterminating Jews like in the Holocaust their policy? Hamas's policy? No. It's completely crazy. And then... This is, you know, a government minister saying this is our policy. Our policy is based on, you know, that's like saying Saddam Hussein did 9-11 or something crazy like that. It's just not true. Right. It, it, in a way, Scott, it's even worse because this is Palestinian authority money. And he's kind of presenting it as it would all go right toward to Hamas, which, you know, of course, is a completely different group in a, in a rival political faction among the Palestinians from the Palestinian Authority. So um, and that's what they you know, did. it's just very misleading. That's what they did in 2006 when W. Bush forced them to hold an election and Hamas won a plurality and had to form a coalition government. The first thing they did was punish the P.A., and deprive them of all their tax money and essentially weaken their position uh, in comparison to Hamas. And then they tried to sponsor a coup by that same weakened Palestinian authority, which, of course, failed and led to Hamas taking over the Gaza Strip under Israeli overlordship and siege, of course, in context here. But, yeah, now... Talk about the, um, if you could, call Anzalone from the Institute and Antiwar.com. Tell us about the humanitarian crisis in Gaza now as far as uh, numbers of people killed and wounded and also these reports about hunger and and even starvation. 
disease and, you know, the all the, if you can imagine, the refugees of the refugees of the refugees from North Gaza now, what, living in tent cities down there uh, near Rafa or what is going on down there? Yeah, Scott, so this is really awful, and I'll try to run through all the statistics that I, that I kind of have handy here. Uh, the number of dead by the official count is over 23,000, although all along it's you know been reported that that's the official number, and there are quite a few other people that have been killed that are not counted there. There's at least another 8,000 people missing, and among the dead, nearly 10,000 now, now are children, and uh, 6,700 are women, so uh, mm-hmm. a pretty now- strong percentage are definitely civilians. And, and what you're saying there is you're, you're referring to people who are still lost under the rubble or will never be found, right, because the Israelis are just bulldozing the rubble as they go, and so these are just people who are, will never be seen again or get a burial. Right. Or, Many you know, of them bury alive. Right. Maybe years down the line, you know, people will recover skeletal remains or something like that, but certainly no kind of uh, dignified burial and probably won't ever be counted. You know, years after the Battle of Mosul in, in Iraq, where there are, you know, far more construction equipment and funding to find people, they're still finding, you know, not still, but three, four years after that conflict, they were finding bodies under the rubble there. So yeah. you can only imagine for Gaza, there's just a lot of people who are never going to be counted. And I guess eventually missing will become dead and never found. Yeah, they'll just be MIA and presume KIA, right? Um, right. And um, by the way, so this is in Reuters, and I'm sure other places you may be able to uh, expand on this, but I've seen it reported multiple times in the Western press that Israeli authorities ratify these numbers and say that, yes, it is true. And then according to Reuters, but they insist that one third of them are combatants, which is a nice way of saying that the super majority of people they've killed have been innocent civilians. But and that's accepting their proportions there. But they agree with the totals. So for everybody who's heard over and over that, oh, those are just Hamas's numbers, Hamas's numbers. Well, no, they're not. Right. And even a State Department official, Barbara Leaf, said that the numbers were likely an undercount. And UN officials have the, said the same thing all along. And, and, you know, there is a track record of the, the Palestinians. I think uh, there's a good article by uh, Matthew P- Petty in Responsible Statecraft on this, how for years and years, the Western press just reported the numbers put out by the Gazan Health Ministry because they were always shown to be accurate. And it's just now in this conflict that suddenly they're constantly denounced as, oh, these are just the Hamas statistics. Right. It's just propaganda to try to put you and me on our back foot where we got to defend against all this stuff. You know, Iraq War II is the benchmark for all this, right? If you're arguing against Iraq War II, you had to explain what it was really about. At the same time, you had to debunk all of the lies about what it wasn't about. So even though it's not about weapons, I still got to talk to you about mustard gas and aluminum tubes and African uranium and all of the rest. Right? You got all of the smokescreen that you want to just dismiss as smokescreen, but you really have to go through and confront those one at a time as well. These numbers right. are credible. The Israelis admit it. And we're talking tens of thousands of innocent people blown apart and buried alive here in this thing and with 100 percent American support for every bit of it. And I read a quote from an Israeli general saying we could not do this without America. It's their planes, their bombs, their everything. Without them, it'd be over. Yeah. And Scott, there's also a new article out in uh, Plus 972 magazine, which is, of course, a, a Tel Aviv based outlet where they go over 
the torture situation in the Gaza Strip where, you know, Israeli forces go into a neighborhood, they round up all the men and uh, they strip them down to their underwear. They blindfold them, put a bag over their head, handcuff them, uh, place them all very close together in a truck and haul them away somewhere. Nobody has any idea where they're going. The Israelis aren't reporting it. Uh, You know, people who have since been released from these camps report that, you know, they're deprived of food, medication, water. And so, you know, anybody in their 50s, let's say, that has a heart condition is just dropping dead. Uh, They're, you know, torturing people, cigarette butts, you know, putting them out, uh, beating them uh, in in various kinds of ways. Uh, They're chaining them to fences for long hours of the day, not giving them food and meds, uh, um, water, making them soil themselves. So it's a a really horrific situation. And of course, you know, I'm sure all the Palestinians that are dying, you know, dropping dead in in these prisons are probably just being buried in a mass grave somewhere or not really counted. Man. And then, so tell us about this article, Israel choking aid deliveries into Gaza that you wrote here at the Institute. Yeah, so we had a U.S. Senator, Van Hollen from Maryland, a a Democrat, who was on CBS's Face the Nation, I believe. And he said that the Israeli inspection process has been described to him by international aid organizations as the most restrictive that they've ever seen. And uh, he actually described that a part of the process means that if they search a truck and they find one item that they declared to be uh, you know, something on the banned list, then they'll send the whole truck back and and not allow it to go through rather than just taking that item off. And so that's causing a lot of delays. And then, of course, we've even had uh, the, the French government complaining about how, you know, the aid that they're trying to provide to Gaza can't get in because of the Israeli bottlenecks. Uh, you know, the, the inspections are going very slow. A lot of the inspections have to be done in Israel, but then the aid has to travel through Egypt uh, into Rafah, uh, the Rafa crossing and then into Gaza. And of course, all the aid that's getting into Gaza is only going to the south, the hundred thousand people or so. And they really have no idea how many people remain in North Gaza. But there's at least a hundred thousand there that are getting essentially no aid deliveries. And there's been reports. And again, this is U.S. mainstream press that the the people in northern Gaza have taken down to hunting stray dogs and cats in order to to try to feed themselves. Jesus Christ. Hey, guys, I've had a lot of great webmasters over the years, but the team at ExpandDesigns.com have by far been the most competent and reliable. Harley Abbott and his team have made great sites for the show and the Institute, and they keep them running well, suggesting and making improvements all along. Make a deal with ExpandDesigns.com for your new business or news site. They will take care of you. Use the promo code SCOTT and save $500. That's ExpandDesigns.com. Man, I wish I was in school so I could drop out and sign up for Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom instead. Tom has done such a great job on putting together a classical curriculum for everyone from junior high schoolers on up through the postgraduate level. And it's all very reasonably priced. Just make sure you click through from the link in the right margin at scotthorton.org. Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. Real history. Real economics. Real education. Hey y'all, I got a new coffee sponsor. Mundo's Artisan Coffee at MundosArtisanCoffee.com. When I wake up in the morning, I feel like my brain is all dried out. I need to pour a hot mug of rich, tasty coffee all over it to get it back working again, like 10W30 for the noggin. Though not necessary, it helps if the coffee tastes good. Well, Mundo's Artisan Coffee does taste good. They get the best beans from all around the world, and they don't burn them. 
Support the show and support your brain at MoondozeArtisanCoffee.com. Just click the link in the right margin at ScottHorton.org. Sanchez War Radio, I'm Scott Horton, talking with Kyle Anzalone from the Institute and Antiwar.com and uh, host of Conflicts of Interest. Now, what about the threat of this thing spreading? We've got the Houthis, who are kind of the latest and newest and most aggressive part of the loose Shiite alliance in the region. But we've got tit-for-tat still with Hezbollah in southern Lebanon. And we've got strikes back and forth in Syria and Iraq. And man, if I read this right, Kyle, you got Biden's own people complaining to the Huffington Post that he's kind of off on a rail and they don't know what he's going to do. And they're really worried. People inside the White House are really worried that Biden is going to allow Israel to expand this into a regional war against the Shiites? Yeah, and it seems, of course, if Israel would choose to expand the war, it would be against Hezbollah. That's where most of their strikes have been. And yeah, yeah, the Huffington Post reported that there is members of the White House that feel like they are constantly trying to pull back from the ledge here. But they say that the problem is, is that this is a firm policy of Joe Biden. And even the New York Times uh, reported that this has been the, the thing that Joe Biden has been most personally involved with. Uh, during his time in the White House. And so the the official speaking to the Huffington Post says, well, if it's the commander in chief, eventually you have to go along with the policy, which we know that uh, administration officials didn't feel that way during the Trump presidency. But now that's pushing for more war. Suddenly they can't do anything to resist the president. Of course, resigning would be another thing that you could do and uh, publicly come out and say what a disgrace Joe Biden is for doing this. That would be really important. And uh, but but we're not seeing uh, very much of that. So, yeah, yeah that's uh, really important. It does seem like there's been significant escalations. Israel has killed a Hamas official in Beirut. I think it was the first Israeli strike in Beirut since 2006. And then they've also killed some senior Hamas commander, uh, Hezbollah commanders that has, uh, you know, ramped up tensions. And uh, Hezbollah has carried out some pretty significant attacks on northern Israel at this point. The, a lot of the Israeli towns up there have been completely evacuated. An air base that was uh, fairly important to the Israeli operations in no- northern Israel uh, was at least significantly damaged. Jason Ditz report this at anti war.com was at least significantly damaged by uh, Hezbollah attack. All right. And then um, so talk about the Iraqi reaction to the strikes there. Yeah, so the U.S. has uh, carried out assassinations in Baghdad, and Biden ordered this around the anniversary of the Soleimani assassination uh, in Baghdad under Trump in 2020. And so I think that inflamed tensions a little bit more among the people of Iraq. And so the Iraqi government is asking the U.S. to leave again. Uh, The U.S. is saying that they're not going to leave. And I don't think there's much the Iraqi government could do if the U.S. says, no, we're going to stay. Um, and so at this point, it doesn't seem like we're, we're going to see an end to the U.S. forces in Iraq, but the Iraqi officials are going to be complaining about for some time. Yeah. Well, and, you know, there was this bombing in Iran as well uh, at the tomb or I guess on the road to the tomb of Soleimani and You know, people were kind of jumping to the conclusion that America or Israel must be behind it, which America and Israel both did back Jandala there about a decade ago. And, you know, even Dan Rather covered that for some crazy reason. I think he was spinning for Jandala, actually. 
But there's a lot of good reporting about that. But anyway, um, there's no specific reason to believe that that's true here. I would take another lesson. If everyone would just hold their horses a second, look who's attacking Iran. I mean, if the if the claim is credible, I don't know if the claim that it was ISIS was credible, but that's what they said. But it's at least a plausible answer, and it goes to show that Israel's interests fighting against the Shiites is 180 degrees from America's interests. When the people who slaughter Americans and Europeans by the thousands are from the Sunni side, the Bin Ladenites, whether ISIS or Al-Qaeda or their different breakoff groups. And, of course, in the past decades, when, of course, especially during Obama times, even have us fighting on Al-Qaeda's side against the Shiites. And so just goes to show when the neoconservatives talk about American and Israeli interests, they pretend that it's all one and the same thing. Like Michael Ledeen used to say, Tehran is the terror masters. <laughs> well, they're not behind bin Laden, so ain't that completely irrelevant? What, they back Hezbollah? What the hell does that mean? Who cares about that? Southern Lebanon isn't on America's northern border, is it? Right, and I, I think there's a couple other important points there too, Sky, and another important lesson here, and that is, you know, Iran is always portrayed as this bloodthirsty, irrational country that just wants to kill Jews. But here, about two days after the former prime minister of Israel uh, claimed credit for an attack in Iran and also said that the Israel should carry out more attacks in Iran, you had this massive explosion at the gravesite or at, you know, a, a shrine for, you know, one of the most heroic figures in recent Iranian history. And rather than using that and exploiting that to attack Israel, the Iranian government has, you know, been relatively reserved. They're saying that they're going to carry out a response, They, you know, and they're certainly going to do something in response here. And uh, I think they've, you know, said that there's some ISIS person that they're looking at here. So, you know, just the the way everybody portrays Iran clearly isn't correct as the way the Iranians are reacting here, because they really could, you know, use this to uh, portray as, oh, this was definitely the U.S. and its allies in Israel. Yeah. All right. It's Anti-War Radio. I'm Scott Horton talking with the great Kyle Anzalone from Antiwar.com about all hell breaking loose. And of course, for the last few months, all attention has been diverted to Israel-Palestine away from what's truly the most dangerous thing in the world. I mean, even if it turned into a regional war, even if you had new Sunni and Shiite alliances against American Israel in a full-scale regional war over there, that's still really nothing compared to the risk of getting into a tangle with the Russians who are sitting on a pile of 7,000 H-bombs who could annihilate our entire civilization in an afternoon, permanently. So, what's the latest out of Ukraine? Kyle, I'm very interested to know. Well, Ukraine is in need of weapons, and uh, th there's not a lot of what they need forthcoming. When it comes to the F-16s, we got news that the first shipment is supposed to be three F-16s uh, coming from the Dutch has been delayed by another six months. I think they were hoping to get them right around this time, and they're now saying quarter two. So I'm guessing sometime in June is when they're looking at shipping those F-16s to Ukraine. And Ukrainian officials have said that there's uh, like three 
groups of pilots going through training. Uh, the first one, again, is expected to be ready in quarter two. The group of pilots in the U.S., I, I believe, are supposed to be ready at the end of this year. And then there's a group in the U.K. that may not be ready until 2025. And so, uh, you know, the, the F-16s are still a way off for Ukraine. And in the meantime, they are really struggling on the ground. Uh, Russia is out firing Ukraine in artillery three to one, at least, is what the Wall Street Journal reports. Uh, that's on the front lines, and the Ukrainian forces have resorted to using more drones, uh, like small drones the size of dinner plates or so. They're strapping grenades or any kind of munitions and explosives they could find on these uh, things. And while they are effective against infantry targets or maybe uh, soldiers on motorbikes or traveling in cars. They're really ineffective against any kind of armor or any kind of building, you know, with a concrete exterior. And so um, in Russia, I guess, is developing some capabilities to take out the drones. They report that a small number of them do get taken out with like electronic warfare interference and, and things like that. But it's reflective of an overall shortage that Ukraine has of two major components. One is artillery and one is uh, air defenses. And Zelensky was just in Lithuania and he said our warehouses are empty and was particularly appealing for air defenses. Now, Ukraine has a couple problems here, Scott. One is that the U.S. is out of aid, so the White House needs reauthorization uh, you know, for more funding to, to arm Ukraine, and that is at least held up in Congress for now because of Republican demands on immigration policy. So I assume that's eventually going to be worked out and th there will be money for more aid. However, another issue here is just the amount of arms in the Western stockpiles. We know that it, the needs of Israel are diverting 155 millimeter artillery rounds. A really core need of Ukraine is being shipped to, to Israel to carry out their operations in Gaza and uh, the Ukrainians are left without. And then also air defenses, the U.S has resorted uh, to pushing Tokyo to actually alter their constitution to allow them to ship Patriot missiles to the U.S. And this is a whole scheme to free up more Patriot missiles uh, that the U.S. could then send to Ukraine. And those are air defense systems. Uh, so in the U.K. says their stockpiles are empty as well. Hey, I'll have you know, Kyle Anzalone, that there will never be any blowback from America remilitarizing Japan. Mark my words, no comeuppance. It'll be just fine. Well, and, and you know, Scott, another point on this, of course, is the way the U.S. has remilitarized Japan has also been uh, aimed at bringing South Korea and Japan into trilateral pads together. And that has really inflamed tensions on the Korean peninsula. Biden's done a lot of other things to inflame tensions there. But for the North Koreans, one of the biggest issues is what they see as the U.S. trying to create an Asian NATO, this trilateral pad between the U.S., uh, South Korea and Japan. And while I think most people in the U.S. probably think that they would utilize this alliance to defend Taiwan from China, the North Koreans see it as a real threat. And, you know, it wasn't so long ago for the North Koreans that they were living under imperial Japan in really, really miserable and awful conditions. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I think it is important to go back to the Huffington Post story about Biden calling the shots on Gaza. There's so much speculation about who's really in charge. And I think really that's the scary answer here is Joe Biden is. And he's the same Joe Biden he's always been, you know, and only now he's just too old to think straight at all. And he's risking conflict in Korea over Taiwan. 
threatening regional war in the Middle East and while we're in the middle of a proxy war with Russia? And now, what about the talk recently that, geez, we kind of know the Ukrainians lost now and we're sort of admitting it now after two years and so maybe we should begin to find a way to wind things down? That had a piece in the New York Times. Aha, Putin is licked. He's willing to accept Ukraine's surrender, possibly. What do you think? Yeah, maybe that will be the only way that the West is able to portray this as a victory. They'll take their ultimate fantasies of Putin really wanted to conquer Poland, but had to stop halfway across Ukraine. And that's our real victory here. Yeah, exactly. Uh, We only gave him four provinces, so... But but like I was saying before, Scott, I think the Western war aims in Ukraine are hitting real logistical problems here. And it's not just ammunition and money. It's also manpower. Uh, one of the Ukrainian platoons interviewed by The Wall Street Journal said they had half the number of troops uh, that they should have in their platoon. And this seems to be pretty consistent. And the Ukrainian, I believe, interior minister recently said there's been 500,000 casualties. And, and he was talking about casualties severe enough to take people off the battlefield. So not just minor injuries, significant injuries and deaths there. What an absolute catastrophe. You know, I saw a tweet this morning. Somebody said, hey, Taiwan, heads up. This is what we have in mind for you. Do not trust the United States of America. And it just showed, I think it was Bakhmut in absolute ruins. Can you imagine America saying, hey, go ahead. We've got your back. (laughs) And getting into a war. You know how this ends up. We ran an article on that by John Walsh this week at antiwar.com because Taiwan has elections coming up, I believe, this weekend. Right. And um, how much time we got? No, none. Next time. Thank you very much for your time, everybody. That's Kyle Anzalone. He's news editor at the Institute, opinion editor at antiwar.com. And check out his great podcast, Conflicts of Interest, three times a week. Really appreciate you, Kyle. Thank you, Scott. All right, y'all, and that's Anti-War Radio for today. I'm your host, Scott Horton. Again, find the full interview archive and sign up for the podcast feed and everything at scotthorton.org or at youtube.com slash scotthortonshow. Follow me on Twitter at scotthortonshow. And check me out this Sunday in the Orange County Register. I've got an article in there called RFK Jr.'s Unconditional Support for Israel is Costing His Campaign for President. I think you'll like it. And I'll be back here next Thursday, as always, from 2.30 to 3 on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. See you next week.